This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Sukmani Karana in an episode about her new book from Bristol University Press titled Mediated Emotions of Migration, Reclaiming Effect for Agency. Welcome to the show, Sukmani. Thank you for having me, Nate. I appreciate it. Can you start by providing an overview of your book, Mediated Emotions of Migration? What are your main objectives, and what brought you to this idea? I have been interested in the emotion of empathy for a while. My main discipline is media studies, um, and I have been trained to look at the various representations of migrants and refugees over time, as well as in contemporary media. So I was interested in empathy because I was starting to look at refugee themed documentaries being produced in Australia since about 2015. And I was noticing that most of them were geared towards trying to generate empathy in the audience uh, rather than necessarily producing a film festival award-winning film necessarily. A number of them were being produced to be screened in schools and detention centers and hospitals and the like. So the main objective was let's try to affect or affect these um, these audiences who might not otherwise get exposed to refugee or get exposed to this kind of content. So that was my kind of entry point into emotions or affect um, as a media studies and a migration studies scholar. Um, and I think that led me down this sort of path of not just emotions ab- about migrants and refugees, but what, what are the emotions of migrants and refugees? Because a lot of the literature covers uh, migrants and refugees as people who move be- because of cer- their circumstances. In the case of refugees, it's it's forced migration because of, say, civil war or because of being persecuted. And for migrants, they're often cast as economic mi- migrants. Um, uh, uh, that is people who move for better, better economic circumstances. So they're always kind of rational decisions and, and they're always fixed in time. Um, but through my fieldwork and through being exposed to um, actual people, uh, I realized that wasn't necessarily the case, even though the perception of the media representations were um, always fixed and always casting these people in a particular way. Um, and I started looking at both emotions of migration, emotions about migration. When you think about people thinking about migrants who are not migrants themselves, the media reports on their public attitudes to migration. Again, as it's, it's something which is rational. Um, and then you have the literature and cultural studies that exi- that's existed for some time 
from say the early 2000s by Sarah Ahmed and others that looks like looks at how a lot of the emotions associated with migrants are negative emotions like fear and anxiety and hatred. Uh, but I was also realizing through my work on empathy that there are there are emotions that are ambivalent that may have started out in a particular way and that have maybe sometimes been appropriated for, for other ends, like empathy, like belonging, like aspiration. So the book focuses on these three complex, ambivalent emotions uh, of migration and of migrants, and then tries to find case studies uh, or conditions where they have been reclaimed uh, for positive ends. And by positive ends, what I mean here is that they're transformative emotions of social change. I hope that answers your question. Where does the term mediated emotions come from? Well, um, the, as we, as I was talking about the emotions of migration, I think it's also important to realize that a lot of the emotions that are attached to migrants or to migration um, are not emotions that always necessarily come to us directly from people or directly from um, having observed migrants. They often come to us from the media, uh, which could be not just your traditional media, you know, looking at news media reports of refugees or, or migrants, but also increasingly digital and social media. Um, and a lot of the kind of movements that are now working towards change in this sphere, which are working towards better rights for migrants and refugees are also often mobilizing through social media. A good example of that, obviously, is the Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, in its in the iteration that took place in 2020, which also had global repercussions, was taking place when people, a lot of the people across the world were in lockdown, yet there was this great upsurge of emotions on social media, which led to the movement uh, becoming quite global in that particular year. So uh, there, are way, there are ways in which emotions get mobilized on social media, especially emotions to do with migration, which is why I'm calling them mediated emotions. Would you say then that your book is more focused on the self-representation of migrants versus the way media representations are presented? That's a great question. I'm interested in both those aspects, but the reason the book is divided into three sections, the first is empathy, which is about non-migrants trying to represent and evoke emotions for migrants. So that's the only bit, which is emotions, um, which are other people's emotions towards migrants and, you know, the media representations, the traditional and mainstream media representations of migrants, whereas the other two parts, that's two-thirds of the book, which is the sections on aspiration um, and the final section on belonging are largely about the self-representation that migrants engage in themselves. What's the role of effect? You use the term or the word effect in empowering individuals during their migration experience? That's right. Um, I'm interested in, um, you know, there's there's in sociology and cultural studies, there's a distinction of sorts that's been drawn between emotions and affect. And affect is almost a kind of embodied feeling and emotions is, well, you know, that the, the word or the articulation of that particular embodied feeling. So in some ways, it's a bit of an artificial distinction. And many scholars, uh, which I've cited in the book, and I've talked about, like Sarah Ahmed and, um, and others have uh, have said that there, there, there's actually quite a bit of 
inter- interchange between these two words. But I'm maintaining that distinction for the simple reason that I'm saying that emotions have been used in particular ways in public discourse. And this is a way that Im- migrants can reclaim those emotions back, like aspiration and belonging, which sometimes get misused or appropriated for different ends to the ones they were intended. So it's about reclaiming those kinds of affects uh, by migrants themselves through their self-representations and through better representations, through more ethical representations, so that they have more agency. And I explore the idea of agency in relation to that affect in the book as well, because it's essentially about self-determined media representations, which is what I mean about, which is what I mean with uh, uh, self-representation. Uh, if you look at the case of refugees, for instance, in the final section on belonging, I talk about how in in many cases there are well-meaning events that have sprung up to uh, request or require refugees or ex-refugees to uh, rehash their stories of trauma. So they require refugees to to almost perform their precarity in order to prove that they're a refugee or in order to prove that they're deserving of uh, pity or aid or what have you. And, and many refugees have spoken out about this and said that they want to tell their stories on their own terms. So one of the chapters talks about a grassroots community project that took place in southwestern Sydney, for instance, where we paired ex-refugee participants with arts undergraduate students, um, and they made short films with appropriate training and tools, of course. Uh, and we found that uh, the only the only brief given to them was that they had to make films about belonging, very broadly defined. And none of them made a story about their past trauma, or their family's trauma, which I think is a really interesting observation that when they are given the agency or when they, they do feel they have the agency to tell their own stories, they might not tell the stories that is that the stories that are expected of them. Um, so it's very important to uh, for uh, migrants and refugees to feel that they have the agency uh, to, to be thought of as political subjects and not just as political objects uh, in order to feel empowered. What was your research process like? Um, did you have a methodology or approach towards understanding complex emotions that were associated with migration? In terms of methodology, I would have to say that um, I, I went with case studies in most of the chapters because I was trying to look for conditions where these three emotions, which I said are ambivalent, uh, which still have the capacity to be used for social change and ha- have been used in those ways, um, are, are, you know, so there was a case of finding those case studies, but also being really attuned to public discourse and public representation. So um, in a chapter, for instance, uh, which is in the second section on aspiration, I look at the audience responses, uh, which is largely online audience responses to two comedians. The first one is the Indian-American comedian Hassan Minaj and his Patriot Act series, which was quite popular on Netflix. And the second one is Nazim Hussain, who's Sri Lankan-Australian, um, and he's had quite a few popular comedic series on television as well. So it was a deliberate choice in terms of methodology and in terms of examining emotions and the expression and mobilization of emotions to look, to look at how they were reviewed by people of color 
um, reviewers online as well as by audiences online who were largely people of color rather than concentrating on how white reviewers or white audiences were viewing them. Um, and I think the, the the overall terminology I would use for that approach would be, I guess, decentering whiteness, uh, especially for the second and third sections, as I mentioned before, because it's really important when you're talking about self-determined media by these communities and self-representation of these communities to understand how they're viewed by their own communities and not just how uh, white viewers or white audiences or white communities um, are, are trying to understand this material. So I found, for instance, in the, in the chapter on the comedians that uh, there was a lot of kind of in-jokes which were only being understood by these audiences and the comedians were not trying to translate this material or to dumb it down or to make it more palatable for a white audience. Um, so that was a really interesting observation in terms of, you know, how this content has shifted when uh, when these people of color comedians have control over their own process and have control over their own material and how it's, um, how it's uh, broadcast on, on particular media channels. Can you share significant findings from your research that actually challenged or reshaped your initial assumptions about emotions of migration? I think what I was not expecting um, as such, based on my prior understanding of the field and and prior reading of, um, of all of the work that I've read so far in my career on uh, representation and migration in particular is how marginalized communities are building solidarities with other marginalized communities. And I, I, I guess I knew about it theoretically, but a lot of the work in this field is still in the tradition of or in the in the field of allyship, which is to say how if there is a particular cause, how uh, people who have some position of power or influence of some some degree of privilege are the ones who are going to be allies. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about migrant rights or LGBTIQ rights or uh, or what have you. But I think what I found in the final section on belonging in, in the chapter where I interviewed um, two poets, one poet who was um, Iranian, Iranian British, um, and the second poet who's, uh, who's Sudanese American. She, the, the second poet, she uh, hadn't personally remember, she didn't personally have any memories of being in refugee camps, but she was quite aware of the kind of uh, intergenerational baggage she was carrying off the civil war and of being in, in those camps and her parents having those traumatic memories. And now she writes poems as well as creates theater. Um, and she does that within her community. So the, the one aspect of her practice, which I found really interesting, is that it's not for uh, outsiders. It's for the community so that they can have those intergenerational conversations and heal, which I found quite refreshing um, in the sense that most of this theater or most of this creative work sometimes is for outsiders. And, and I think having those internal conversations is equally important. And the other aspect of it, uh, of her work and the work of others who who are like her, is usually uh, children of refugees or second generation migrants who tend to be able to do this more than the first generation is engage in practices of solidarity. Um, so Ifra Mansour is her name and she was also working uh, a lot in, at that time with 
the issue of homelessness um, in her local neighborhood um, and with affected African-American communities during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in her home state of Minnesota. Um, and I think she was very much coming from the point of view that because she she had experienced displacement, she was quite aware of how others would be affected by it. Um, and she was trying her best to kind of contribute to grassroots movements, which which were also engaged in trying to reduce the impact of both the pandemic and also homelessness at the same time. So this idea of transversal solidarities that other I, other scholars like Nira Yuval Davis have talked about, this idea that you may not be experiencing exactly the same problem as another marginalized community, but you have some uh, some degree of, uh, you know, previous experience or some degree of understanding of it because of what you or your your ancestors have gone through um, and to be able to support it in whatever way is possible through material or ethical practices is I guess this in this in this way is what transversal solidarities is um, so I guess the most interesting finding for me was that people who you might think of as people who've suffered or people who are victims who are in in turn practicing care and in turn uh, engaging in these solidarities, which is a really vital finding, um, I think, for for the for the field and also more broadly for social movement practice. What about agency? Is it possible for individuals to reclaim their agency despite or in spite of stereotypical media narratives? I I, I want to um, begin my response by obviously sounding. A word of caution. I don't want to be too celebratory about the fact that uh, the kinds of media practitioners and and politicians I talk about in the second section on aspiration is the norm. Having said that, I, the reason that they're there in the book is because it's a book of book of hope and a book of social transformation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the agency is being reclaimed. It might be in small pockets. It might be in certain spheres of society. It's not across the board yet, but it is being claimed. Again, usually by people who've been here uh, for a while or who are second or further generation migrants because they feel they already feel the sense of belonging, um, perhaps because they went to school in the country that their parents migrated to or because of you know changes in structural circumstances. They feel that they, they belong enough to demand better to engage in active citizenship practices and therefore to create either create better representations themselves or to demand better representations of uh, the mainstream media that they are engaged with. So in the example, for instance, in the in the other chapter on aspiration, um, I talk about three politicians uh, who are politicians of color across three different nations. There's in the U.S. There's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who has been covered a great deal um, by the press in the U.S. and globally. There's Jagmeet Singh in Canada, who's the leader of the uh, NLP there, and there's Sadiq Khan, who's the current mayor of London. And the reasons I've, the reasons that they I've talked about these three practitioners is largely because of their uh, social media uh, following and the way they use this social media to create the kind of self-representation that their constituents and, and all of their followers find really engaging and find that it resonates with them because it's talking back to mainstream media representations of people of color more broadly, but also of their 
particular ethnic communities. So in, in that way, I think they are using, they are reclaiming their agency. And in some ways, you could argue that it's more possible through social media than it is through mainstream media, which still has a lot of gatekeepers. Um, there's a number of, uh, you know, there's a number of actors, for instance, in countries like Australia and America, who often complain about being stereotyped uh, when they sign up to uh, a, a drama series or a comedy series on broadcast television, but they often then end up going through the route of creating their own series on something like um, a, an on street on, on, and a video on demand streaming platform because they find that there's uh, less gatekeepers there um, and they're more in control of their content. And I think it is Indian American comedian Harry Kondablu who called this the farm to table approach, which is again the, this idea that um, you know they're not going to be policed. Um, if if they they have more control over their content and don't have to go through uh, the mainstream media gatekeepers to reach a broader audience, the other aspect of ma- of social media and of the the video on demand streaming platforms that must be mentioned is that they don't have to cater to the kinds of audiences that broadcast media has usually catered to, um, and and they can some someone like Hasan Minaj is successful because he. He speaks to a, a young person of color, millennial audience across English-speaking countries in the global north and elsewhere, uh, rather than just trying to appeal to an all-American audience, which may not necessarily understand or be engaged with his content. So it does free them up a little bit. Uh, the availability of this this media does free them up a little bit to to reclaim that agency in, in a way that may not have been possible, say, 10 or 15 years ago. What specific examples or case studies do you want to highlight in this interview? I have already highlighted uh, some of the ones that had an impact on me um, and were surprising, um, and others which I guess come from ongoing work in the field of refugee media and the, in the field of empathy. Um, another one that I'll highlight is in the first section on empathy, which I haven't really talked about, uh, which is this idea of trying to move large sections of the community um, on subjects like refugee rights. Or in the case of Australia, we've had this long-standing policy of offshore detention of boat arrivals because of the stigma that's been created that boat arrivals are illegal, even though that's not necessarily the case if you look at the definition of you know, who is an asylum seeker um, as per the UN 1951 Refugee Convention to which Australia is a signatory. Um, so this kind of misrepresentation or stigma that's been created means that um, anyone who came here um, by boat is considered... Uh, to be someone who doesn't deserve to be here. And so there's been a bit of a movement amongst filmmakers and people creating media representation um, and refugee advocates to try to counter mainstream media representations, to try to counter public perceptions, and to try to counter a lot of uh, uh, dog whistling created by politicians on this this issue. Um, And it's ongoing because the policies haven't officially changed. There's just like some exceptions that are made from time to time for particular refugees or for particular families. Um, So the first, very first chapter talks about a screening of a film called Freedom Stories, 
which was in some ways an ensemble film. It it included stories of a number of refugees who came here on a vessel in the early 2000s and are resettled in different parts of Australia and recounted stories of not their trauma necessarily on the vessel unless they were willing to talk about it, but of how they're doing and how they're feeling in the community. Um, and some of the stories were really effective. The film was screened, the documentary was screened um, at a you know, regional university campus um, with a number of people who were sympathetic to the issue present, as well as a lot of people who may not have known a great deal about the issue present. Um, so it was a mixed audience, and we did an audience questionnaire and a Twitter commentary as the screening was going on um, and did some analysis on the basis of that. And I guess we found that there's using, you know, previous work on empathy as well as this this kind of, um, you know, action research, we found that there's essentially a couple of types of empathy. There's the empathy that is, uh, you know, just thinking about people's humanity um, and not necessarily thinking about the structural issues that are creating these problems. And there's what we call critical empathy, where, you know, your your response might start with thinking about the the issues of the people who are affected by um, Australia's refugee policies, but then you also do move on to, you know, the structural conditions that are that have created those those particular problems, and you are willing to move from empathy to some sort of some form of action or some form of taking responsibility. Um, and that's ongoing work that I've been engaged in through a whole series of media representations of refugees over the last 10 years or so. But in this case, I highlight it through the lens of critical empathy. Um, and I think it's really important that people uh, think about, um, you know, making that journey from the humanitarian response to the critical empathy response um, in order to kind of affect uh, collective collective change. Earlier, we addressed intersectionality of disciplines but what about the intersectionalities of gender, race, or socioeconomic status? Can you speak more to that if you have not already? Mm, it's a really important question. It's not something that I've addressed head on in the book, but I think it's implicit in a number of chapters. To give you an example, when we are talking about aspiration, the reason we're largely covering, um, the reason I've largely covered second generation migrants in the self-representation is because of intersectional reasons, because of the fact that they probably have socioeconomic um, advantages or their parents' generation who are largely engaged in, um, you know, building up financial security. Their, their second generation also is likely to have more cultural capital so that they can speak back to racism, they can speak back to misrepresentations of themselves in the media. So there is an implicit assumption that you can only aspire to uh, a better life for your community if you already have a certain level of uh, middle-class advantage, for instance. And in terms of um, race and gender, um, I'll start with race. I, I haven't addressed particular cultures, a particular uh, particular migrants from different parts of the world because it's a book that spans the global north and the reason it spans the global north is because I'm interested in how emotions travel how border policies are pretty stringent but how emotions and and policies that are inspired by or evoked by particular emotions about migrants travel across these borders so I wanted to show that they're actually quite porous 
um, in terms of emotions like, you know, fear or hatred or xenophobia or even ambivalent emotions like empathy and belonging. Um, at the same time, I think it is important to realize that there are racial hierarchies amongst migrants. And I think um, uh, poets like the Korean-American writer Kathy Park Hong in her recent book, Minor Feelings, which I reference in the book, uh, does talk about Asian-Americans in particular, for instance, and how they are, they are rendered as subjects who don't have emotions. Uh, and, you know, they're often used by whites um, it, to sort of say that, you know, they are better migrants, they model minorities compared to other types of migrants like African-Americans. So I think it is important to keep those distinctions in mind while reading this book, even though I'm talking about uh, people of color and uh, non-white migrants in a more general sense in the book, those particularities of which types of migrants are seen as embodying an excessive emotion uh, as opposed to which types of migrants or which types of bodies are seen as completely emotionless. Those distinctions are quite important to remember as as we read the book. Um, at the same time, I also, I also think that while gender is not in the foreground, it's it's there in certain chapters. Um, in the second chapter on empathy, I look at the photographs of Jacinda Ardern, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, and how during the massacre in Christchurch, where uh, there was there was a massacre at a mosque, and I think it was about fifty Muslim men, women, and children who were killed. Uh, she, in the aftermath of that massacre, she was quite successful in mobilizing the media and making sure that there wasn't a counter response from the New Zealand public. Um, and she was quite successful in also being inclusive in a way where she was able to say that Muslim people are us, they're not separate from us. She was able to counter that other othering kind of immediate knee-jerk reaction. And she th did that in of, often in very, what might be called empathetic, uh, feminized ways. She wore a headscarf uh, when she went to one of the mosques. Uh, the, the photograph became quite iconic. It was uh, not just in broadcast media, it was also, I think, on a billboard in, in New York. Um, so those moments were iconic simply because they embodied a kind of public performance of empathy, of care. Um, and I, I argue in the chapter that often during moments of crises, it's been associated with female political leaders rather than male political leaders. Um, and it's an interesting distinction to make. And this book was written at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we did have quite a few um, female political leaders in charge of countries which are affected by the pandemic and having a particular response to it, which was seen as more, um, quote unquote, caring. But, you know, two or three years on, do we still have that? I, I don't think so. So I think a future research could look at whether, you know, we, we do see, seem to have more um, uh, women identifying political leaders in moments of, say, health crisis, as opposed to, say, in the middle of a war where we think of men as being able to take charge more. Um, I don't want to essentialize those attributes, but I'm just, I guess, talking about these things in terms of public perceptions, in terms of uh, what political parties see as, uh, you know, would constitute a better leader at a particular moment in a country's history or in global history. And then finally, in the final concluding chapter, um, I again make a few notes about the idea of care and how care also has that ambivalence to it. Um, and care is also 
uh, an emotion that's been written about a fair bit in feminist literature in terms of the ethics of care, in terms of care as a moral emotion, but also care as a material practice. But again, it's important not to essentialize care because that often leads to the sorts of problems that we have in many countries where feminized work is undervalued, where people who uh, in professions like, say, you know, childcare workers or teachers or nurses are the ones that are often underpaid. So it's about trying to value care differently. It's about trying to kind of think about gender um, and gendered roles and gendered practices, but also trying to revamp them um, so that they can be most transformative. What recommendations do you have for policymakers who may be looking to create more nuanced and empathetic approaches to migration and empathy? Um, I think um, I've, I have engaged with settlement organizations in a number of my projects where they have started engaging with this idea of belonging. One of them is an organization called Settlement Services International that works with a number of resettled uh, refugees in the Australian context. And they've been running a survey since, I think, 2019, um, which is called The Foundations for Belonging. So that this predates the book in some ways, which shows that there is already an interest in belonging and the various aspects of belonging um, as far as the resettlement of migrants and refugees is concerned. And there is also recognition in other countries like the UK, where I think the um, the Department of uh, the equivalent of the Department of Home Affairs and Immigration has invested a lot of resources in reimagining the integration index, so that integration isn't just about you know new communities trying to fit into um, the new country, but it's also about the host community making it a welcoming environment welcoming environment for them, which in some ways is the essence of what I'm, I'm arguing is belonging, that belonging is reciprocal, that it's not something that just the newcomers have to do uh, or engage in to fit fit into the the country that they've moved to, but it's also something that uh, the people of that country, whether they're first or second generation, whether they've been there for many generations, that they have to actively engage in making it, um, you know, uh, an appropriate environment for the newcomers to flourish in. So I think the indices of integration have already begun to shift to account for that idea of belonging um, in terms of the feelings and in terms of the material practices, the structural conditions that generate those feelings of belonging. So there is some recognition, I would say, amongst policymakers that that should already take place. Um, but I think more broadly, as far as emotions like empathy and aspiration are concerned, and you know the more ambivalent ideas of what is what does it mean to be well settled in a country, I think many countries in, in the global north and across the global south that have migrant populations have gone through uh, phases of xenophobia and phases of populist nationalism uh, over the last ten years or so, and has probably. Um, has probably there's been a spike since the election of Donald Trump in 2016 um, in the U.S. So I, I would argue that uh, the aspect of the, the mediated aspect of emotions or the mediated aspect of um, you know public emotions is actually really important there and something that public and that's something that policymakers should be paying more attention to. Um, to give you a very recent example, I mean, the, the reason that the mediated aspect is important is that we, Australia had 
something called um, a referendum on a voice to parliament for our First Nations people a few months ago. Um, and when the last government, when, when the current government promised that they would hold this referendum about a year and a half ago, there was a pretty high percentage of people who, according to the polls, said that they would vote yes for First Nations people to have an advisory body and that would be enshrined in the constitution. But there was also a, a, a huge misinformation campaign uh, from the start of this year, so much so that the vote, which was once 60% um, became 40, a 40% yes vote, which means that the referendum was defeated. Um, and many of many many commentators here were comparing it to um, the fake news campaign that took place during Trump's election, also to the Brexit uh, vote. So there is um, there is growing recognition that what happens in the media, especially on social media, in terms of what people believe in, um, the level of trust in the media, how people's emotions are invoked through the media. Those are really important issues, uh, and they're often premised on people who are othered or people who are minoritized, uh, including the misinformation campaigns that take place in migrant and refugee communities. But I don't think we're, we've come up with adequate strategies yes, yet for countering them other than, you know, doing fact checking and source checking. So um, I think policymakers, this book is, is testament to the fact that policymakers should pay more attention to more creative approaches to countering uh, mediated emotions, which are negative emotions, and creating, uh, trying to create positive change and social change through more creative storytelling approaches and through giving more agency uh, to minoritized communities to to create their own self representations, which would be a better counter to the misinformation campaigns. Can you discuss any particular global perspectives or cultural differences? For example, specific countries that you mentioned? Um, um, as I've said, I've covered a range of global North countries. With obviously, be, there obviously are a lot more examples from countries like Australia, uh, because I was located there and the book was being written during the pandemic. So a lot of field work outside of Australia was not possible. Uh, but a lot of the digital field work took place in countries like the UK, the US, Canada, um, I was also informed by a lot of research on migrants and refugees that was taking place in Europe, especially in the wake of the Syrian refugee crisis. Having said that, when you look at uh, policy level discussions of certain terminology, there are uh, country specific uses as well as, um, you know, there, there's also a, a, the history or trajectories of migration in those countries, which inform how people more broadly think about them. Um, to give you an example, a term like multiculturalism still has um, a, a lot of heft in, in some countries like Australia, although it might mean different things. And in Australia, multiculturalism is often a top-down um, policy discourse that a lot of young people of color often identify with it as well because it helps, to, helps them to feel that sense of belonging to Australia because they think of it as a multicultural Nation, so it it works in both top down and bottom up ways. Um, and in other countries like America, multiculturalism often has a melting pot kind of connotation, uh, where it's not so much about the existence of different cultures side by side, but of this idea of 
uh, almost assimilation where you know the different countries the different nationalities come together to create this um this melting pot which is american culture whereas if we think about more recently in countries in europe including you know countries like germany which are which have, which have traditionally been thought of as quite welcoming to refugees uh, there has been a lot of backlash to policies like multiculturalism uh, but if you think about other issues like being uh, having a humanitarian stance towards refugees countries like australia have been very have had a very hardcore opposition to it which i talked about earlier in terms of the policies towards boat arrivals um boat arrivals are almost never accepted in australia anymore especially since 2001 um whereas in america and and places in europe that 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 is not the, the, what has traditionally been the kind of uh, policy stance the public stance towards uh people who arrive by boat um so in some ways australia's history of being um a settler colony which is an island and also of having particular islamophobic discourses since 9/11 um in addition to you know its own kind of internal domestic politics has contributed to those particular policies towards refugees which you might not see in north america or europe so so i guess what i'm trying to say is that there are diff- definite different cultural and national differences arising out of the histories of migration in these countries how do you see your book contributing to migration studies more broadly and what gaps or areas of focus do you believe it addresses i think migration studies has done really important work in terms of producing um accounts of migrants and refugees which tell us uh how things are so they they're good in some ways they're really good empirical anthropological in depth um as well as uh, macro accounts of current movements as well as you know the reasons refugees and migrants move as well as how they try to resettle in new countries uh what is missing in the in the literature especially missing in the approach to migrants and refugees and i think a lot of scholars are now trying to argue for a change in that approach is what i referred to as the emotions or affect lens to understanding refugee movements and migrant movements as well as the dynamic nature of their resettlement in the new location so it's not just about thinking of them as rational subjects who move because they have to move or who move because of better economic the opportunity of better economic circumstances there's often various emotional motivations for the movement um and also various kinds of states of flux when they are in the new place uh with what the subsequent generations inherit um and finally with trying to make them political subjects or think of them as political subjects i think that's what an emotions and affect lens can contribute unless you think of someone as both rational and emotional um and give them their full humanity um rather than e- either casting them in the lens of someone who is deserving and hence should be grateful um you know someone someone who is heroic uh because they've gone through uh, a great deal of hardship rendering someone with their full humanity means accounting for you know the rational decision making as well as the emotional states of flux um including the political subjectivity that's really important for uh, you know these minoritized communities 
to to feel like they fully belong um, in the in the new country and more more broadly in the global world order. So I think what this book is contributing to migration studies is this is is case studies as well as you know an overall approach that uh, tells you that this is important that you know an emotions and affect lens is important, but also gives you concrete I, concrete case studies, examples, toolkits of of ways that it can be facilitate, facilitated um, in certain conditions. And let's move on to specific theoretical frameworks or concepts that guided your exploration. Um, in terms of theoretical frameworks, I've uh, talked about the emotion and affect distinction. I've talked about um, mediated emotions and also the idea of self-representation and self-determined media. Um, I think in addition to saying that there is, uh, you know, there is the kind of emotions affect uh, gap in migration studies, it's also important to realize there's a bit of an affective turn more broadly in the humanities and social sciences uh, terms, uh, you know, even disciplines which might not usually be associated with emotions and affect like international relations and politics are paying attention to emotions and affect. And I think that tells you something about the state of uh, not just the world, but where scholarship is moving towards to realize that scholarship and um, social movement or scholarship and advocacy or scholarship and activism have to move hand in hand in order to be of value to each other. So the reason that, you know, um, um, disciplines like international relations and politics realize that a study of uh, whatever the subject material it, it is that they're studying through an affective lens is crucial is because it will add to um, their understanding of how uh, not just nation states act, but also how citizens um, are moved and how a lot of these uh, these these um, exchanges are dynamic in nature. Um, and I guess in terms of um, other other as, other aspects of the theoretical framework that that I think are important to find uh, to point out in my response is this idea that um, the, the the emotions like empathy and belonging and aspiration are not the only uh, ambivalent emotions uh, that I've identified. There are others which I gesture towards in the conclusion. There's care, which I've talked about a little bit, but also anger and resilience. Um, there's already a lot of work in populist feminist literature about anger and how anger can be mobilized for different ends, how it can be a productive emotion. Um, people will be surprised um, to see that aspiration is um, in the book in some ways because aspiration in migration studies is often theoretically framed as uh, not an emotion necessarily. It's cast in that rational light of something which is migrants moving towards greater socioeconomic stability in a lot of literature in, in the field of education, for instance, aspiration is largely about um, school students or their parents trying to be in a better area so that they can go to a school with, with, a, with a greater potential of giving them the best outcomes possible. So that's often been the only understanding of aspiration um, in the literature about migrants. And I'm, I guess, stretching the theoretical uh, those theoretical param parameters of 
aspiration, as well as the shared meanings and uses of the of the word aspiration to actually highlight how it is already a complex dynamic emotion for a lot of young people of color for whom aspiration is not just individual aspiration because they often aspire to be, they often start out aspiring to be what their parents want or aspiring towards individual uh, careers in particular areas, hit a ceiling. Um, and then often the realization comes that it, it can't work. Um, the neoliberal subjectivity is not going to work. Um, it has to be a collective idea of aspiration, which works for their their entire community or other minoritized communities. Um, and then, you know, the parameters of aspiration get stretched um, and they become advocates in, order to, in, in, in addition to aspiring towards their own uh, kind of career goals. So, um, yeah, I think the, the the theoretical contribution of the book is trying to is trying to increase the increase the I guess the boundaries of of terms as they're currently used in both popular usage and in migration studies literature because the way that they take the way that they're being articulated by um, by people of color or the way that they're being manifested and practiced by people of color actually um, almost asks for such a kind of re-theorization and re-articulation. Can you share a personal story or experience from your research that left a lasting impression on you? Um, I think I'll um, one of the one of the projects that I talk about in the section on belonging is the one that I was personally quite involved in because it was trying to pair university students, many of whom were my own students, with um, ex-refugee participants. Um, which was a very rewarding process, um, uh, despite all of the challenges that occur with projects like this, because they're not part of university assessment, um, and it requires collaborating with external organizations that often have different timelines and different um, research and project objectives. Um, There was one student and refugee team which was struggling a little bit because they not because they came from different countries, but also because they came from different generations, whereas all of the other pairings were similar aged. Um, and I think they find it easier to collaborate. But this this particular team struggled a bit to make a film about belonging. And um, it ended up actually being quite a surprising, pleasantly surprising outcome because um, they ended up introducing their families to each other. This was an um, African-Australian um woman aged about 20 uh, who also had spent some time in New Zealand. She introduced her family of three and her mum to her her filming partner who was Greek-Australian, second generation, had kids and grandkids of her own um, and uh, had struggled as a single mother as well as struggled with the kind of inheritance of her Greek parents who were quite strict. Um, so despite their different generations and different upbringings and different cultures, they made a really fantastic documentary about intergenerational belonging, um, which was when they were screened as part of the event that took place um, at the end of this project was one of the most um, successful films of the entire project. Um, And I think what it taught me is that um, sometimes we try to avoid discomfort 
when we are dealing with issues uh, of migration on we or when we're at the coal face of working with um, you know tensions or whether they're intergenerational tensions or whether they're intra-ethnic tensions and sometimes working through through those tensions and through those frictions in creative ways and thinking of it as productive discomfort can sometimes produce the most interesting outcomes. How do you see the emotional landscape of migration evolving in the future? And what's in store for your future research? Um, I think a part of me is uh, frustrated that uh, some of the cyclical natures that we see in discourses and policies about migration seem to not uh, shift a great deal. Um, and a lot of the really draconian policies get imported, like the Australian policy of offshore detention is now being trialed in the UK, where they're trying to send off um, uh, their boat arrivals off to uh, another sovereign country. Um, and also there is this, you know, this kind of idea of migrants and refugees contributing to urban congestion, which wasn't the case during COVID, which was the case pre-COVID, which has returned now, um, as you know, many countries across um, the the OECD are facing economic challenges again. So, you know, emotions, uh, so refugees and migrants are being thought of as disposable all over again. So, uh, as a researcher, it is frustrating that some of these emotions which have stuck to migrant and refugee bodies don't entirely go away, despite the lessons we should have learned during the health crisis when a lot of these migrants and refugees were frontline essential workers. So uh, it, it tells you that they're still thought of as, you know, um, as commodities and not as, you know, fully realized subjects. But I think the, the, the hope that I see in the emotional landscape is the kind of self-representation and self-advocacy. Um, when there was, uh, during COVID, when there was uh, a ban on the temporary travel ban that the Australian government imposed on Indian nationals, uh, sorry, Australian nationals who were of Indian origin trying to travel back to Australia, uh, even though they had Australian passports and, you know, you're, you're trying to prevent people from your own, from, of your own, um, of your own kind of uh, citizenship to travel back, um, which was, uh, which is really kind of had no precedent. Um, there was a, a huge uh, response to it from the Indian Australian community, but also many allied organizations that thought of this kind of uh, policy or this kind of travel ban as going against the very idea of, um, you know, what is citizenship. So, and, you know, the travel ban had to be reversed and there were there was an apology and so on. So I think that uh, nation states still try forms of border policing or forms of, uh, you know, implicit and explicit forms of trying to uh, police communities along racialized lines. But I also do see uh, a much greater, uh, you know, kind of appetite amongst many of these communities, especially younger people in these communities, to not to stand up to it um, and to not just kind of take it. So uh, that is definitely a huge kind of change or huge shift in the emotional landscape in, 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 um, in migration studies, I guess. And in terms of my future research, I think I've become 
I'm probably becoming much more interested in the misinformation aspects of misrepresentation. I think misrepresentation in in migration and refugee studies has existed uh, for a long time. Um, You know, it's probably existed since Edward Said started talking about Orientalism. Um, But it has taken on new manifestations in the age of social media. And a lot of that is being cast as misinformation, which may may not be intentional versus disinformation, which often is um, intentional. So I'm interested in the emotional aspects of those kinds of mediated representations, especially when it comes to, again, um, uh, migration communities or communities affected by migration, uh, both in terms of misinformation about them and the emotions that generates, as well as the misinformation that circulates in these communities um, because the mainstream media doesn't create um, representations that are accessible to them. So that's probably the direction that my future research is going to head in. For New Books Network listeners interested in exploring this topic further, what other books, articles, or resources would you recommend? I've talked about uh, a book by Kathy Park Hong called Minor Feelings. She's a Korean-American poet and writer, and I highly recommend her book. Um, it's not it's not um, an academic book. It's a very readable piece of memoir come literary journalism. Um, and I recommend it because I think it really um, highlights that idea of how migrants have often been uh, rendered as emotionless subjects, especially in her case, Asian Americans, whereas a lot of them are just trying to suppress those emotions or keep them under the surface because have, they have to play to that idea of being, um, you know, perfect commodities or perfect uh, working subjects or perfect model minorities um, and how, you know, those spaces can be reclaimed while decentering whiteness. So um, I highly recommend that work. Uh, but also a lot of the kind of what might be called seminal work in emotions by, um, you know, people like Sarah Ahmed, who've talked about fear and hatred uh, in countries like Britain and Australia. Um, I think it's important to revisit that work because a lot of those discourses continue to the present day. Uh, work like Ugly Feelings, um, which again is probably more in the realm of literature, uh, but talks about, you know, emotions that are uh, icky or dis- or uncomfortable or ambivalent. Um, uh, that's, that's really, uh, that's something that I would highly recommend. And in terms of the media, um, I really like the work of uh, Zizi Papakurisi, who's an American academic who writes about the public mobilization of feelings through social media. Um, and I think she calls it networked affect. So if you want to understand how feelings are generated on social media, not just in an individual way, but how they generate social movements, and I think this is also really useful work for people who work on campaigns or in social movement studies, um, I would highly recommend her work. In these final um, closing questions, what insights do you think your book provides for educators or those who are involved in making curricula at schools about migration or cultural studies? Um, For some time, I have been a little bit frustrated with uh, both some curriculum as well as some 
um, NGOs that work with this idea of empathy and generating empathy, especially for refugees, by simply simulating it. So without naming the organizations, they might construct uh, a pretend refugee camp um, or, or they might use a text or a resource that tries to simulate in students or in viewers this idea that if you wear these 3D glasses or if you go through this particular camp, you will be able to empathize with refugees. And I think that's a really um, disingenuous, not just, is it, not just is it disingenuous, but also I think it's um, not an ethical way of trying to generate empathy, which is effective and long-lasting. Um, it, it, it produces this idea that empathy is something that, um, you know, that you can just feel, that you can just, you know, step into someone's, someone else's shoes by, uh, by imitating a particular act. Um, I think critical empathy is more along the lines of you may not be able to understand someone's circumstances, someone's emotions exactly because you haven't been through their life circumstances, but you can still um, you can still work from that place of not knowing to produce uh, responsibility and action. So I think that curricula and um, you know campaigns like this should be much more attentive to a kind of critical empathy, kind of empathy that goes beyond kind of humanitarian discourses um, and pedagogy that's more attuned to the political conditions. Uh, and the emotions arising out of those political emo- political conditions to not thinking about not centering your emotion but centering the emotions of those that are affected. So those are some key areas where I think uh, curricula could be um, could be shifted a bit and be made more more inclusive. And finally, do you address the distinction between voluntary migration and forced migration? Um, I don't do this directly or explicitly, but in the sense that the section on aspiration is almost entirely about um, the descendants of uh, migrants who came voluntarily. Um, So they obviously have a certain degree of privilege, uh, whereas the section on belonging is almost entirely about refugees and the children of refugees, which is why I deal more directly with issues like precarity and trauma, which isn't something that the the descendants of people who are voluntary migrants have to deal with. So in talking about aspiration and belonging in two separate sections of the book, I am addressing that distinction. Any final thoughts for the New Books Network? Um, I just want to say that thank you for um, thank you for inviting me to do this podcast with you, Nate. And I hope that this the questions and the responses inspire your audience to order a copy of the book for your institution or get an ebook for your, for yourself. Um, you can also get more resources for this particular book uh, through the Journal of Intercultural Studies, which did a, which did a mini symposium on it. Um, and if you've got any interest in reviewing it or in collaborating with me, then you can email me directly at s.karana at unsw.edu.au. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Sukmani Korana for discussing her new release, Mediated Emotions of Migration, Reclaiming Effect for Agency, out of Bristol University Press.
Subscribe to get more episodes like this one from the New Books Network.